This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 56 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Ray Liotta. Liotta has starred in several of the greatest films of the last 30 years, and now he's conquering television as well, as Lieutenant Matt Wozniak, a corrupt cop who is full of surprises, opposite Jennifer Lopez in NBC's hit new hour-long drama series, Shades of Blue, which premiered in January and less than a month later was renewed for a second season. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about his rise from soap operas to the movies. His breakout role was as a vengeful husband in Jonathan Demme's 1986 film, Something Wild. He also gave a haunting portrayal of Shoeless Joe Jackson in Phil Alden Robinson's 1989 film Field of Dreams, and he will be remembered forever for his interpretation of the naive mobster Henry Hill in Martin Scorsese's landmark 1990 film Goodfellas. We also talk about his Emmy-nominated performance as Frank Sinatra in the 1998 HBO TV movie The Rat Pack, and his Independent Spirit Award-nominated performance as a narcotics detective in the 2002 film Narc, which was guided to fruition by Leota's own production company. The 61-year-old, who was accompanied to our studios by his young daughter, an aspiring performer herself, dishes about why he owes his film career to Melanie Griffith, how his iconic funny scene in Goodfellas opposite Joe Pesci came together, why he's a bigger diva than J-Lo is, what it was like filming the Shades of Blue kiss that blew up the internet, and much more. Let's go to that conversation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. First of all, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. What we do in every episode is go back and then work up to the current project, so I hope you don't mind if we begin by just talking about where were you born and raised. Well, I'm adopted, and they tell me 
because I didn't really find out through the right papers. I say Newark, New Jersey, which it definitely was New Jersey. I've seen papers where it says another place, which I never remember where, so... Uh, I'm so used to saying Newark, New Jersey, that I just go Newark, New Jersey. But I'm pretty sure that's where it was. Sure. I understand that you first tried acting in elementary school. Well, the only thing I can remember about elementary school is we were doing a musical or singing the chorus. And I think his name was Mr. Cohen. We were practicing and, and a couple kids had solos. And Alan Rowland... This was in sixth grade. During lunch, he got sick. He fell, whether it was his nerves because of it was in the the, the (laughs) afternoon performance. But I was drafted to sing Alan Rowland's solo. Do you remember what it was? No, No. I wish I did. I wish I did. That would be a good one. So, but the only thing is I felt so self-conscious because obviously I had to I had to read it. You know, everybody else had it memorized, right. but I had to sing it and so I did. So, but it, it didn't all of a sudden make me say, "Okay, I, this is something that I want to do." Right. And then I did like in third, you know, maybe in 6th or 7th grade, sometime in grammar school. Like, now it's probably grammar school. I went to summer camp, and we did Oliver. Okay. And I was Fagin in (laughs) Oliver, which they obviously cut down. Mm -hmm. So that was just like your normal everyday thing that they do. But again, it was you know I was was also playing baseball and riding horses and swimming and everything else you do in camp. So again, it wasn't like I found my niche. And my senior year, our soccer team did really well, and we went to the finals. We kept moving up in the tournament, and that means basketball was had to wait because we were playing, you know, soccer. We were moving up in the tournament, and for some reason, I remember. I remember the last time I saw this basketball coach, he gave me such a dirty look because he truly. We had an argument, and he was yelling about something, right. and I just said, "I don't need this." And for some reason, a senior in high school, I quit. I said, "Fine, you want to yell? Go yell at somebody else." Right. I quit. I hope he hears this. <laughs> Mister T is what we call him. And I had a drama class as an elective that me and my friend Gene took, but it was only just to mess around. I'm not very proud. I was an average student. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I can't remember the drama teacher's name right now. He asked if I wanted to be in the play. I said, well, you already had auditions. How could... He says, don't worry about it. You want to be in the play? And I was so used to doing things after school that I said, why? I have no idea because it was torture. We did Sunday in New York. It was a a Neil Simon play. And I did it. I learned all of it. And I hated every minute of it. (laughs) And there was a scene in there where I get out of the shower. So he, being the type of teacher that he was, put pictures of me 
all over school in a little towel. <laughs> but that could have been a positive as well. I well, mean. it couldn't, but it wasn't for me. <laughs> I was like a jock, and I did the play. Still, this is not something that I wanted to do. I said, mm-hmm. oh, well, I found myself. Right. It came time to go to college. I didn't want to go to college. I had no idea what I wanted. To, this is basically the question you're asking, right? Yeah, and, I, and <laughs> it in is fact, a long one. No, but it's good because I've read that when you so you ended up going off to the University of Miami, right? And with no intention of continuing this there. No, no, no. I only went to university. Uh, I walked out of my SATs. But at that time, it was before Donna Shalala took over the University of Miami, mm-hmm. which is a really good school now. At that time, in the early 70s, you just needed a pulse to get in there. <laughs> so I got in, and I was going to take liberal arts because yeah, yeah. I had no idea what I wanted to do. My dad said, go wherever you want, take whatever you want. All right, so I was going to take liberal arts at the University of Miami. I finally got to the front of the line. And they told me that I had to, it was required to take like some math and some history. And I said, there's no (laughs) way I'm taking math and history. I don't even want to be in college. The last thing I want to do is go through that again. Mm -hmm. So it just so happened that for the liberal arts department, right next to it was for the drama department. So I took a step over and said, I'll be a drama major for a year because I had the class with Gene. It was fun. We did children's theater, which that was a lot of fun. And I just figured it would be a good way to get through like my parents and go to college, take whatever you want. Fine. I'm in Miami. I'll take drama. How hard can it be? <laughs> and that was it. And there was, it's the typical actor story. There was a cute girl <laughs> who was behind me and she said, are you auditioning for the play tonight? I said, no. And she berated me. How could you not audition for the play? You're a drama major. I like, you have to do the play. <laughs> the play's the thing. It's right, all about right, doing the play. Right. And I auditioned for the play, and I got in it, and it was a musical. And the first thing that I ever did in college was I was a dancing waiter in cabaret. (laughs) Now, who was Buckets? Buckets, his name was Robert Lowry, and Buckets was the acting teacher. And he, I could relate to. I couldn't relate to any of the students because they were all drama kids from like my daughter she's been doing it since she was little Mm -hmm. and this is still what she wants to do Mm -hmm. which was the case for 90 percent of the kids who were in the drama department i had no designs on doing it so i was just kind of a jock they called him buckets because he used to play basketball put put the ball in the bucket Mm -hmm. so Mm that's that's why they called him buckets and it just turned out as he was a great teacher he was kind of with the stanislavski method so it was kind of methody but he was just a guy's guy and he wore these dark blue glasses and his voice was always raspy and 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 he made it he sort was, of more appealing for you yeah yeah he would give me you know we he would assign scenes we would do the scenes and luckily he didn't say you suck what are you doing here he was very very encouraging mm-hmm. And like anything that happens, you know, when someone's giving you encouragement and you're feeling good about it, you start feeling good about it. And I started getting, you know, good supporting parts. 
And my sophomore year, I started doing the leads with the plays, and reviews would come back good, and, you know, people, your feedback comes back good, and so anytime someone's making you feel good about something, you, you know, you have to at least pay attention to it a little, and that's what I did, and I ended up staying the whole four years, and we did everything from Shakespeare to Tennessee Williams to Jules Pfeiffer, the independent things. We'd write our own plays, along with having to take dance classes and things like that, which was a trip and they said that we had a tap dancing class and I just said there's no way <laughs> I am gonna buy a pair so I right. told them that that I was poor yeah. and that I couldn't afford the tap shoes because I wasn't about so I, I, I got out of it I did tap with sneakers right. on <laughs> so now coming out of University of Miami what did you imagine you were going to do with your life what kind of a career did you think you would have because I think pretty quickly you were in New York City, right? Yeah. My first year was 73. I graduated in 77. I wasn't really a moviegoer except on Sundays when my parents would take us. That was like a family outing mm -hmm. of something we would do, which was great because you see the bridge on the River Kwai or Sound of Music. And that was back when they had intermissions. Yeah. And it was like just overwhelming. Didn't make me want to be an actor, but it was just overwhelming. It yeah. was done so well. I mean, I was so taken by it that I literally thought that they really were killing people. I thought they took prisoners and, filmed and killed them <laughs> on camera because that's how real it seemed to right. me. So though you end up in New York and in a sense you were getting work pretty quickly, right? The but third day I was in New York I got a commercial because a friend of mine who graduated the year before Lenora May was signed to do Jaws 2. The good thing about the University of Miami at that time is they had an auditioning class to get you ready, that you get pictures, and you get your resume together, and you go up and stay with students that had already graduated, and they would kind of show you the ropes. This is what you got to do. And at that time, in 1977, it was about you just take your picture, and if they're not there, you shove the picture under the door, or if you need to drop off your resume and, yeah. and picture, you just put it in this basket, and you hope that they gave you a call. Well, Lenora, we went in like around six o'clock for her to sign her contract. And when the agent came up to me and said, hey, you want to do a commercial? <laughs> and I said, well, to myself, I'm saying, no, not really. Because by then, after seeing all, you know, the movies in the 70s was a really great period of movie making. And I really responded to what De Niro was doing, Pacino, Gene Hackman, Vanessa Redgrave, all these great actors and the types of movies they were making. It really, that's what I wanted to do. So when he said, you want to do a commercial, it was like, well, yeah, sure. Right. And he sent me to this place, and I, I went, and I, I, it was for Love Songs of the 50s. And it was me and this girl in Central Park, and they took still photos of it. And then the guy would talk. It was like for KTEL Records or something, you know, something you see late at night where, you know, remember this in the 1960s, and then they would play the music, right. and we were like the what they superimposed 
was, you know, over the music, <laughs> and the titles was me and this girl right. walking, holding hands. So that got you some exposure. I know that you were getting screen tests, I think, for Zemeckis' first movie. You were, yeah. I think, bartending like a lot of actors do at Schubert. At the Schubert organization, right. yeah. I was bartending and watching plays right. every night. It was great because only Wednesdays and Saturdays is when you had matinees, so you were free to audition during the day. Mm-hmm. And at night, I would just sit and watch. Even if you know you didn't have the coat room that night, I would stay and I would watch everything and I would go to a different theater and I would watch it all sucking it all up and then the big break though at that time I guess would have felt like the big break would have been getting on the uh, NBC soap opera another world how much did that change things well I didn't want to do a soap opera at all again remember I wanted to be in a movie with Pacino or De Niro and that was what I was going for but my dad being a depression baby, he was saying, what, are you kidding me? They're, they're offering you, I think at that time, it was like $400 a day in 1977, which was a lot of money. And that was just for one show. So if you had two or three shows, then, you know, you'd make over a 1000 bucks. But his thing, too, though, which was much smarter than my way of looking at it, he says, you, you'll also be in front of a camera you'll learn how to do things in front of a camera because I had done like 50 plays in school, but nothing in front of... Well, there there was this one class that we took where we did things in front of right. a camera, but not to the degree of what we had. But what what this producer, Paul Rausch, would do is if he needed a certain part, he would go and see Broadway shows. And if he found somebody who was right for the character, he would go backstage and say, whatever time you want to get out to do your show... I will get you out. Would you do the soap opera? And in theater, you know, there's not a lot of money. So he got a lot of bites. And I'll never forget one of the best actresses I ever worked with was this woman, Kathleen Widows, who played my mother. She was just great. And it just made me loose in front of a camera because these people were, you know, it was more about the stage for them and they had a a real natural improvisational kind of quality about, you know, because basically in soap operas, you know, there's just so many ways you could say pass the cheese. It's just, it's the same. Plus they're throwing tons of pages at you a day. You have to get a lot better from doing that. I was on the first show. It was my storyline that the soap went to an hour and a half, Another World did. And it was right in the middle of my storyline. And I had easy 30, 40 pages, 50 pages a night to learn. Now, basically, you're saying that, you know, pretty simple things but still you have to yeah, you, you have to know them so yeah i'm really glad that i did it and i did it for three and a half years because there was a writer's strike that didn't affect aftra so i stayed an extra year because the strike went on for a while to me it was then i, I got what my dad was saying you know you just learn a lot so at that point, after three and a half years, moved to L.A., right? And now all of a sudden, it just Squat, goes cold? Nothing. Right. Nothing. The best thing that happened about that 
was my friend Stephen Bauer. We all called him Rocky. I did plays with him. We did Mice and Men together and, and a bunch of... This was uh, at the University of Miami? At the University yeah. of Miami. He let me stay in his and Melanie's place. He was married to Melanie Griffith at the time. And I stayed at their place in Malibu. They stayed at my place in New York. But he said, there's this great teacher. You got to check him out named Harry Mastrell George. So I said, yeah, definitely. Because, you know, you learn through, it's through Harry mostly. Buckets, you know, I learned a lot. But with Harry, he really taught that the imagination is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it's going to get. And I really bought into that philosophy. So I studied with him twice a week, six hours a night, and he was all about doing homework. He would assign scenes. You'd get two scenes uh, because, you know, people were at work or, or coming to, you know, or not working or didn't show up. So we always wanted you to have something prepared. And it was just all about doing homework. It was as if you got like a movie and you, you don't rehearse these things. Most, the only movie I think I ever had rehearsal with was Goodfellas. Wow. We had two weeks of rehearsal for that. But other than that, it's not. So he kind of mimicked exactly what it's like. You do your lines, you, you do your homework. And, you know, the day you're doing your scene, oh, you're being introduced to the actor you're kissing or whatever for the first time and just letting it rip so his whole thing was about homework and in the course of taking that class is when i think you first heard about something wild right yeah exactly gosh you really have your homework now i would try, I try. you do yeah that was probably i mean that really if there was a before and after it's something wild right so how did that Again, it connects back with Bauer, right? And Melanie Griffith. Yeah, it was with all the guys in that class. Because we were doing it two times a week, six hours a night, you become very friendly. And the nighttime, the Tuesday, Thursday class was very intimate. I think there were only like 14 people in the class. And one night, uh, I think it was Jimmy Young's, he asked me, whose brother was John Savage. He asked me, he said, you go up for uh, this movie, Something Wild. I said, no, I had done a series. I did, wait, I did some guest shots during that period. I had done, David Wolper decided to do a series based on Casablanca on the set in the same soundstage. Uh, yeah, and we and everything we had, all the furniture, the piano was all from wow. from Casablanca. And I was Sasha, the bartender. And if I sneezed, it was too much because <laughs> I never had any lines. Right. And David Soul played for people who do know he was from Rick. Starsky right. and Hutch, right. but he played Rick. Yeah, and basically it was you know women coming in and him seducing or helping <laughs> and then he would you know fix it by the end of the show right. and so i didn't do but I, I also did a series called our family honor which was with ken mcmillan and eli wallach eli wallach was the head of a mafia family ken mcmillan was a cop and these two knew each other growing up so there was a mafia family and there was this police family and I was kind of the B storyline. I was the partner 
of Eli Wallach's granddaughter. So that's how I kind of fit in. So it was like a B story. And then when that fell apart, I was lost. I had a little money, but my bank account was really getting down. And then, so I was back, and then I went right back to class. And they asked, did I audition? You know, have I been up for this movie, Something Wild? And I said, no. And I called my agent and I said, do you know anything about this movie, Something Wild? And my agent was, they were so small, you could put their whole office in a thimble. (laughs) It was really like a little small agency. And they said, no, they couldn't get me in. So I didn't know what to do. I went home for Christmas like I always did and told my parents what was going on. And my parents were very involved in politics. And politics is all about favors and, you know, you do for me, I'll do for you. And my dad just said, you know, just very nonchalantly, well, just Melanie's already in the movie. Just call her up and see if she'll get you an audition. she had been cast as the yeah, she was Yeah, right. And... I said, no, no, I don't want to do it that way. For some reason, I had some pride. Like, that's not the way you do it. And and then I was just moping and moping, and my dad would say it again, and they would talk about it. And then I said, you know what? I'm 30 years old, never done a movie. All I had was the soap and a couple failed series. I said, all right, I'm going to call Melanie. I'm going to do it. And I was really nervous about doing it. I don't know why, because she was so sweet about it. So I called up Stephen. I called up Rocky. said, can I talk to Melanie? Put Melanie on the phone. Hi, Ray. I said, Melanie, I hate to do this. I heard you're doing this movie, Something Wild. From what I hear, Melanie was also in this acting class, too, okay. that this Harry's class. I says, I hear I'm kind of right for the role of Ray. You think you can get me in to audition? And she said, yeah, no, of course. And because what she had was Jonathan Demme promised her that she could have some input with the person who played her husband because she had done a movie before Something Wild where she had a very bad working relationship with the guy. Well, for Jonathan said, no, Melanie, I've got it down to three people. Well, I've been doing this for months. I just really, and she said, Jonathan, you said that I could have say in who is going to play my husband. And he says, you're right. I I think she just did it just to exercise her right to find out, (laughs) to say who could be her husband. I'm not sure it was a big belief in me, but (laughs) she said, okay, fine. I went and I think I met Jonathan on a Monday and that was it. And I said, fine, if I'm going to get turned down, it's going to, he met me, he saw me. If he saw a potential that I was right for the, you know, not a casting agent saying no to me. I got a call on Tuesday that Jonathan wanted me to come in with a couple of scenes. He bought in an actress to do the scenes with. So I went and I did the scenes with the actress and then nothing on Thursday. I get a call. I said, Jonathan wants you to come in and read with Jeff Daniels. I said, oh, whoa, now we're getting somewhere. I'm going to read with a guy who's already, like, cast. Um, I couldn't sleep, obviously, 1130 at night. 
Johnny Carson is on, and who's the guest that he has on but Jeff Daniels. <laughs> and Jeff Daniels starts talking about the Purple Rose of Cairo that he had just done with Woody Allen. And he had just done that movie with Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine, oh, yeah, where he's the astronaut. Yeah. What was the name Terms of that? Terms of Endearment. Yeah. Terms of Endearment. Yeah. He's talking about that. And I'm saying, oh, my God, this guy worked with all these people. And I'm getting up, and I'm doing push-ups, and I'm looking at the screen and I'm listening to Jeff and then I'm doing more push-ups and I'm going back to reading the script and I don't think I got an ounce of sleep but I was prepared that was all everything that Harry had said do your homework and I had done my homework and then I went in and did a scene with Jeff and I said, well, if they're going to turn me down now, I have no trouble with it. I read with the guy who's already cast in it. And what more could an actor ask for? But at least the ability to be in the room and, and let me show you what I could do. Saturday morning, I get a call. Jonathan is leaving on Sunday. He wants to meet with you before his flight. He said he wanted to meet at Hugo's on Santa Monica sure. Boulevard. I got to see it like right now. And I went and I sat down and I'm talking with Jonathan and we're just talking, just general stuff, not talking about the part, not talking about how to do the part, just talking about whatever, life. He left, and he says, all right, as you know, I had it down to three people. I'm going to go back. I'm going to think about this, and I'll have an answer in the middle of the week. So I left, and I'm kind of like, whoa. Middle of the week to me was three minutes later. I, you know, Monday came by, nothing. Tuesday came by, nothing. Wednesday to me is the middle of the week, <laughs> nothing. And I was just on pins and needles. Remember, I hadn't done a movie. I was 30 years old. I'm getting, like, so close. And then I got a phone call asking me, will I be home at a certain time because Jonathan was going to call me. I said, yeah, are you kidding me? I haven't gone out in three days, four <laughs> days. All I've been doing is sitting by the phone. Right. Yeah, I'll be here. And I didn't know if it was going to be a yes or a no. And he finally called up, and I, hey, how you doing? He says, Ray, I thought a lot about this. Will you play Ray in, in the movie for me? And I said, yeah, what, are you kidding me? And I remember I hung up the phone. I was 30 years old. I cried like a baby. <laughs> the, the tension and everything right. was so built up and wanting it so bad to finally get a movie and what a first movie to have totally. it was a really dynamic well let's let's part. remind people who may not remember it was the best reviewed movie he'd done it up to that point he'd done some other good ones but this was very well received everything from the new york times review on everybody said you stole the show and another thing that came out of that you were playing the psychotic guy who was terrorizing his wife and intense began to become the word that was used to describe you probably more than any other and that even despite the fact that with your next project I think was Dominic and Eugene mm -hmm. and you it seems like you made a concerted effort to go in the other direction totally. from that going forward right but there's always been this assumption that it's often used to describe the characters you play and the way you play them as intense what did you make of that well it's kind of like damned if you do and damned if you don't it was it's at least if they were talking about it 
it means they were talking about a movie I had done, which was the whole point, which is to get into movies. Dominic and Eugene was a sweet, sweet part that Tom Hulse was unbelievable in. Did they have any reservation about casting you in that? Having No, I went through a whole auditioning process. I went and they said, they saw something wild, and they said, what? what this what, guy. This, this kid that played <laughs> Tom Holtz's fraternal brother, who, right. who's, who's a medical, uh, was a yeah. medical student. Right. The dilemma was our father used to beat us, and he got beat and fell down the stairs, and his brain was affected by it, and I'm a really good medical student, and I have an opportunity to go to Stanford to to do my residency. And it was that dilemma, like, what should I do? It's, it's you know, I can't leave Nikki. So I eventually did, but I must have auditioned three or four times. Because they assume that intensity that, yeah, is your they default. That, yeah, like, it's like, it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're constantly fighting that. And one of the reasons why I waited so long to do a second movie is I had offers to play tough guys, but that's not who I am. I mean, me personally, I've never been in a fight in my life, and yet here now I'm getting stuck with this tough guy stuff. And luckily, Mike Farrell and I forgot the other guy's name was married to Bonnie Franklin. I'm sorry that I forgot your name. (laughs) Anyhow, it worked out and we did scenes together and it was really sweet and nice and nobody saw the movie. Actors saw it. I think you came away a lot more respected by other actors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in order to get jobs and to keep the jobs coming, the public has to to see it. (laughs) Well, but that being said, the next one, which is one that I love, it's a lot of people's, one of their favorite movies, I understand you did not love, partly because at the time you'd done an interview where you said, it was to Hollywood, and that was Field of Dreams. So for people who remember, you played Shoeless Joe Jackson, the he in If You Build It, He Will Come, all of that. But you were not that gung-ho to do it. Well, I didn't think it was to Hollywood at all. I just didn't understand. My imagination hadn't worked and hadn't done enough to, you know, it just seemed crazy to me that this guy would plow up exactly what the story's about his cornfield to build a, a i didn't see the bigger metaphysical way of looking at it all i just looked at it too literal but i was gung-ho to do it you know to play a baseball player and and you know to do that kind of homework and I just had never seen the movie as the story, which is really what happened. Because when I was in the middle of Goodfellas, my mom was sick, and she eventually passed in the middle of Goodfellas. But when it came to see a screening of Field of Dreams, we were sitting there, and we were in New York, and she was just having a rough just a rough time. She had cancer and her lungs were filling and she just wasn't feeling right. So we just left. And based on that, to this day, I've never seen Field of Dreams. Never seen it all the way through? No. Wow. You mentioned Goodfellas. And first of all, we were talking about the reservation that you had now to being a tough guy, having done that before but i mean it's martin scorsese so i guess you make an exception to that rule right when you get well but henry wasn't a tough guy that was the whole point henry was a guy 
the story that I heard, which makes sense, is Dominic and Eugene was invited to the Venice Film Festival. I took my dad to it. Mm -hmm. We were at the Excelsior Hotel looking down at the lobby, and there's this whole commotion going on. And there was this like like 20 people around this one person, and I saw that person was Martin Scorsese. So I said, oh, my God, I hadn't seen... I was the first person he met, I heard. I hadn't talked to him in months. Since you'd met with him about right, because he Right, because he then, Last Temptation of Christ, kind of, all of a sudden, he was able to do. So that's what that was all about. He was, he there was with that. So I beeline down the steps to go say hello to him and I reached in to get his attention and all these bodyguards they threw me off and I said no 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 I just want to say hi to Marty that's it I'm I, I. and the fact that I did that because he thought that I maybe was the tough guy from something wild and immediately it's what's crazy what's great about Marty immediately after not seeing him for four months the first thing he said was you know I got Dominic and Eugene the tape was a horrible tape I really couldn't see what the movie was about <laughs> I couldn't tell anything right. the first thing he said out of you know four months oh my gosh I'm so sorry I, I just wanted to wish you luck and, and, and to say hello and he said that's when he knew he was going to cast me as Henry because I didn't come in as a tough guy. With I didn't bodyguards. come in yeah. like, yeah, like, you know, if I, yeah, get your hands off me, <laughs> back off. I'm, you right. know, I didn't do that. I just said, no, 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 no. And that's the whole thing that Henry was. Henry wasn't a tough guy. If Henry was a tough guy, he would have never gotten as far as he did in the ranks and they wouldn't have let him know so much, but they trusted him. And the only time that he does anything physical is when the kid across the street tries to seduce and put his hands on Lorraine, on Karen. And then when he did that, that's when I that's, uh, that's when I went over and... Even with that moment where you'd kind of impressed Scorsese that you could do that, you had this sensitive side, you still had to get Erwin Winkler on board, right? That's what I heard, yeah. Irwin being that something wild and Dominic and Eugene didn't exactly burst that, you know, in terms of, of people seeing it. Fields of Dreams did really well, but that was more Kevin's movie and James Earl Jones and everything. Yeah, Irwin wasn't sure. And was there something that changed that? Yeah, I think I saw him at a restaurant. It was, uh, talking about meant to be, it was in Venice. I, forget, I think it was Tony Bill's. Tony Bill used to have a restaurant in Venice. And Irwin was there. And I walked over to him and just said, I just wanted to say hi. Uh, I think I said I heard you're having trouble thinking that I'm right for Goodfellas, but I'm telling you, I could do this. And I just hope that you give me an opportunity again came in more as me and less of what he had seen on screen because basically every actor is you know we all get typecast but every actor if given a chance could do something other than what they're typecast as they really can there may be a few that are just locked into like one thing but the majority can do, if given the chance, they could do different roles in different types of movies. So Erwin gets on board, you're on the set, and I, my understanding is Scorsese was basically 
telling you, like, we're going to do this. This is not going to be your traditional gangster movie. We are going to do this sort of like shoot it like a right. gangster movie. What did that mean? Because obviously we all know how it turned out with the tracking shot, for instance, with you, which is famous, and all these different things that were not conventional ways of doing a gangster movie. But what did you take? What he was saying to me, and, and well, was that was a question that I asked him after the movie was shot, was done. I said, "So how do you do this? How do you, how do you work? How do you?" He said, "Well, you know, I sit in my room, and and he mentioned something that he thinks of the music for. Sometimes he thinks." through music that he would want at this point and during this scene and that scene. And then he said he was going to shoot it. He says, you know what? It's a movie about gangsters. I'm going to shoot it like a gangster. If I want to freeze frame it, I'm going to freeze frame it. If I want to use a lot of voiceover, I'm doing a lot of voiceover. Whatever he said he was going to, you know, a gangster basically says and does whatever (laughs) they want to say and do. And I think... By him looking at it that way, I think maybe it's why the movie resonates still today. He shot it how he wanted to shoot it, not how, you know, NYU Film School tells you how to do it or AFI tells you how to do it. He was going to do it how he wanted to do it. And for you suddenly now being on the set with one of the guys that you said was one of your heroes, De Niro, and with a lot of these top, top folks in a Scorsese movie what was that like and also part B with related to that when you think about you know I wonder how you kept a straight face with something like the funny scene with Pesci or something you know here so I've got to ask you about those two things that it was intimidating in theory based on what these people in the movies that I had seen before whether it was Ranging Bull or Taxi Driver or things like that but the bigger picture is my mom is dying of cancer so what do I care about these guys being intimidating I mean my mother was dying like so what's what what are they gonna do we're playing pretend and and I just looked at it from that point of view and so much more important than the actual acting off of people that I had, you know, admired and looked up to, there was a much, much bigger, deeper issue that erased any kind of fear that I would have. And I just did what I had to do because in between I'm thinking like on weekends, I'm going home every weekend to visit my mom who's in rough shape so i'm going to be scared to do a a scene with x y or z it washed it all away right with something like the funny scene when you've got to take your mind off what you're dealing with yourself i mean i was looking at you i watched the pulled up the scene today and forget about what he's doing i'm looking at how you're playing in that scene you know going off of him and i just wondered what was going through your mind with that one well, basically, that scene at first was an improv. It was a, a, during rehearsal. Joe, who's a great storyteller, just I don't know how that story got started in terms of why he told it, but he told it. And Marty thought, oh, wow, what a great place to put it 
where he put it because originally the scene would have started the guy would have come over and said and Tommy you know Tommy orders something else and the guy comes over and says Tommy you haven't paid your bill in a while and then Joe takes the the bottle and whacks him on the head and the next thing you know is we're getting the restaurant from him so Marty and his genius thought wow this would be a great place to put this thing so what we did is he told the story he really liked it and then for an hour or two we were improving it in rehearsal and then once we had it improv to the point uh, where Marty was satisfied with it his uh, assistant or whoever was there typed it up and there was the scene so that improv then became a scene and now that's not to say that within doing it especially the last take or two that they used we did it like exactly how it was and then there was a lull and I could see Marty wasn't stopping the camera and then I said you know what, you really are a funny... I think I added another funny guy, and he says, well, and he takes out his gun and says, yeah, hey, you're going to fold under pressure, and that was all improv. The whole thing was improv, but it was in stone. He wanted it in stone because, one, it can improv can get very sloppy and very indulgent. So unless you really know how to improv and you improv within character, then you're okay. But what happens with a lot of improv is you start relying on yourself and not the character. So you have to be locked into what the character is and so it doesn't get indulgent. We did what was written, but then we we messed around a little (laughs) with it towards the end. So that scene obviously is great. The movie's great. Comes out, all kinds of acclaim. What did you hear from... uh Mr. Hill himself, if anything. I got a call from him. Uh, He said he wanted to meet me. I said, (laughs) oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I wanted to meet him. He said, I want you to meet me with my brother at a bowling alley in the valley. And I said, Okay, so I went and drove to the bowling alley, and I'm not even sure if I knew what he looked like. I don't even know if I had seen pictures at that point, because they didn't want me to talk to him or use any... De Niro was talking to him while they were making it, because he would ask questions about Jimmy, but for me, they didn't want me to have any contact with him whatsoever, and I saw him, he was sitting, just like you think, with his back to the wall, <laughs> with his brother, who really looked like a serious dude, <laughs> who looked like he had really been through things and <laughs> did stuff. <laughs> so I went and met, and the first thing he said, well, you know, we're talking, he said, you know, oh, geez, thanks for not making me look like a scumbag. And I says, oh, my God, did you see the movie? You were completely a scumbag. You ratted on your friends. Right. They all went to jail. Your your marriage went down the tubes because right. you were cheating on your wife. You were doing so much coke you couldn't even function. 
<laughs> and this is what you're you thinking, but you wouldn't have said this, right? Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, I didn't say it. You wouldn't have left the bowling alley. I'm thinking like, yeah, exactly. I says, dude, I think right. you better re-see this because right. you're right. pretty scummy. <laughs> okay, there's two other roles I'm going to briefly ask, and then we're on to Shades of Blue. But okay. i got to ask you, I think a very different kind of part than any other one that you'd played before, I believe, would have been Sinatra in the... 1998 HBO TV movie, The Rat Pack. And you got a lot of acclaim for that. I think SAG nomination, all kinds of stuff. That must have felt like a bit of a risk, right, to go Oh, I didn't want to do it at all. The daughters, Tina and Nancy, asked me to play their dad in a miniseries. And I said no. And they asked me again, and I said no. And, you know, then they realized I wasn't going to do it. Then Rat Pack came along, and and it wasn't with Nancy or Tina. It was just they were asking, you know, Rob Cohn, who directed it, who I knew, asked me if I wanted to do it, and I just said no. I I just didn't want that kind of... I'm not a mimic. I'm I'm horrible with with voices and trying to do and sound like he said. But all they want is the essence of who Frank Sinatra is. They don't was want Frank you to still sound. alive? Yeah, yeah. It was towards the end though. So I just sat and really thought about it and said, "Well, why why aren't I doing this?" And what was bothering me the most was I was afraid of what people were going to say if I was like him or if I wasn't. I was concerned about judgment, and that's the worst thing for an actor to have is, you know, if you put judgment in there, you have a fear of being judged. You're going to be uptight and not do what you're supposed to do. So, I realized the reasons why I was afraid to do it, and I just said, wait a second, I got into this business to play make-believe, to try all different kinds of parts, I'm going to do it. I just said, one of the worst people say is, like, he didn't sound like Sinatra and he wasn't good, well, what's going to happen, you know, right, they like you or they don't like you, it's one way or the other. And then when I met Joe, you know, he said, look, all they want is an essence of who these people are. And I remember Don Cheadle came up to me and said something ridiculous, like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to blow you away in this. And it's like, oh, get out of here. You know, <laughs> competing here is like a stupid thing to say. <laughs> so I did it. And it was the most fun I had. Once I released the fear of judgment or or anything else, it was just a blast to do. The singing, the dancing, everything about it. And I was glad. But the biggest thing was the fear of Mm -hmm. judgment. And that was the uh, Achilles heel for me. Another one that you did that resulted in all sorts of positive response, Indie Spirit nomination, probably very close to an Oscar nomination, was Detective Lieutenant oak in narc and Mm -hmm. i think that the story of that coming about is very interesting because it sounds like you were at a point this is around 2002 i think 2003 when you were not thrilled with the trajectory of things at that particular time and decided to shake things up yourself right i mean that came about because you created a situation where it could yeah and i changed agencies and once i changed agencies I was doing Heartbreakers, I was doing Hannibal, 
And then I said, well, I could take on this little independent because I got two big studio things, and why not take this? Because the script was just great, what Joe Carnahan Mm -hmm. wrote, and I loved his energy. He was just like a bull in a china shop, man. He was just so alive and so happy to get his movie made. And And it was being made by your... This is the first film of your production. Right, right. Mine and, and my ex is Michelle Grace. But the problem was is they never had the money. So it it was one of those independents that they said they had the money, the people that said that they had the money, and they didn't. And basically, if you look at the crawl at the end of the movie, there has to be 27 producers <laughs> because they would get a hundred bucks from this person and a thousand from this person and there were times during the shooting of it where the crew wasn't getting paid but yet they knew we were doing something really cool that Joe the way he was directing it you know I was in the pocket it was just a you know overwhelming just intense guy there's your intense again. Yeah. And Jason Patrick was nailing what he had to do. And these guys, to their credit, they hung in and they did eventually get paid. But it was really, really sticky for a while about getting it done. And the money finally showed up. But they were, you know, maxing out credit cards. And the movie did. It got a lot of attention. It was a really well-made we did it for under $2 million. Yeah, you were great in it. It was one of, your, one of your best, I think. Yeah, thanks. So, all right. When you came into this business, how would you describe people's attitudes towards television in the community? Oh, it was hard. It was pretty much it was your, your career was over. In the late 70s, it was over. You couldn't get movies anymore, so they went towards, you know, and then some people said probably, you know, why go through this craziness of trying to get a movie? Television just seemed to flow a little easier for some people. But at first, it, it wasn't exactly the way you wanted to go. You you know, it was all about movies. At least it was for me. And the last thing I wanted to do, even though I did two series... To me, that was just a stepping stone to get to a series. So it wasn't as respected as it is now. Yeah. But there was a golden age of television in the 50s. Sure. You know, but at that time in the 70s, that... Step period, in the wrong direction. It, yeah. Yeah. But so now, by the time you first read or hear about Shades of Blue, things are totally different. It's like the place to be now. There's so many people who first established themselves in film who are now rushing to do TV. How did this come about? How did you first hear about this kind of this, I guess you would say it's like a cat in a mouse story in a way. And what appealed to you about the project and this guy, Wozniak? Well, it's one of those things that just, you know, they wanted me. Jennifer was already set. She had the script. She brought it to NBC. And from what I hear... Every time she brought it to them, they said, are you going to play the part of Harley? She said no, and they said, well, we're not interested. And that happened a few times until one time they said, are you going to play the part of Harley? And she said, yeah, and so she was in. But she was basically known for her romantic comedies, so they wanted somebody who was known for doing edgier, intense (laughs) 
kind of parts because that's what they wanted Wozniak, the part that I played, to be. And I read the script, and there were a few surprises in there that really blew my mind. One of them, like, you know, the fact that he's bisexual, you know, he was doing a lot of bad things, but yet he was very paternal with his group. There was a lot of contradictions. He's a very complicated kind of guy. Oh, and Barry Levinson was already established as he was going to direct the pilot. So Barry Levinson, who I think is one of the most underrated best directors we've had, he's one of the few directors who is capable and does many different genres. Mm -hmm. I just saw something he did. It was a two, three million dollar thing about poisonous gas that wipes out this resort and then he's doing oh, Madoff yeah, story yeah. it was good yeah, yeah it was movie, good kind of, yeah. you know and then he's doing Diner and he's, he's doing Good Morning Vietnam they were all different genres yeah. that he was doing so the fact that he was part of it was really intriguing to me and the question for me was Jennifer I mean I liked her yeah. she was you know I thought she was great in her romantic comedies but I kind of said well I guess I'm gonna have to believe that Jenny from the block is really Jenny from the block I didn't know anything I had just seen her romantic comedies had you ever seen Out of Sight not, no, I forgot about that yeah. one. But even still, that was still kind of yeah, cute. Yeah, it was a while. It's been a while. It was a while, but it was yeah. still cute. Mm-hmm. There still was that, you know, that banter right, that right, she right. and George Clooney right. had. And what about the fact that you hear these stories, is she a diva, all these different things that people ask, you know, were you, did you have any apprehension about doing this? And then when you finally did meet her, what was your actual impression? That I was much more of a diva. <laughs> I out divaed her by tenfold. Really? I really did. <laughs> yeah, because once I signed on to do it, I was in for a penny, in for a pound. And they do things in TV a different way. And the the fact that you got directors coming in who have no idea what the first four episodes were because all they had was episode five and six. And I wanted to make sure, I if we were doing this, if I was doing this, I was serious as a heart attack about making it as real as a series could be. And NBC, because they were competing so much with the cable channels, they wanted to push the envelope. And Bob, the head of NBC, Greenblatt, he yeah. was Greenblatt, right? He was the head of Showtime, so he knew, you know, about pushing the envelope and what you could do. And he literally, really wanted to push the envelope. And I love the fact that Bob Greenblatt was the head and is the big boss because that's what he wanted to do. And that's why I said, oh, the bisexual thing. Okay, they, so they don't mind pushing that that envelope. And as strange as and weird as it was, <laughs> it's, it's not my cup of tea, right. but I'm an actor. So, <laughs> all right, here we go. And you're referring just for people who are still catching up. There's one episode where kind of people were blindsided because you kiss the guy who's played by Michael Esper, the internal affairs chief. And, I mean, 
just kind of not what people necessarily imagine they'd see Ray Liotta doing. What, kissing or well, grabbing them by the nuts? <laughs> <laughs> Which part? Well, there was a few there of There were a few moments. Well, Which was, and you know what? As an actor, it was the same thing as Sinatra. You, what you do, as long as if you get rid of the judgment right, right. and you get rid of, look, this isn't me, I'm playing pretend, right. and this is what they had me do. But I thought, well, I'll grab the belt or I'll grab, like, part of the leg <laughs> and they said no they want a close up of this and I said what are you kidding me? there's no <laughs> way they're ever going to use this there's no right. way I'm not doing and they said no they really so I just put my big boy pants <laughs> on my big boy my pink big boy pants right. on and and did what they asked me to do, and it fits, and it works, yeah. and it's bizarre, and it's like there's so much to this character that it was, was, and is. I'm really looking forward to seeing where they're going to go this next season. Because when you sign up to do a network show, you have to commit for a long time, right? What was the, the possibility of a long Five years? I think it's five. And you guys yeah. have already been picked up for the second right. season. And just the grind of doing an hour-long network show, people don't realize how much work that entails, right? It's not even that. It's the fact that we're doing two shows at once, because the network wants to save money, so let's just say in episode five and episode six, we're doing those together, there might be some scenes from episode five that take place in, from some scenes for episode six. So instead of going back there the week after, we'll just do everything that has to be in episode five and six since we're already going to be there. And that you have no idea what it's gonna be, and I'm not complaining. But you got to be on your game. You have to do it right. You have no time whatsoever. And luckily, I love doing homework, you know. But on Friday, you have no idea what's gonna happen until you get the script on Saturday, maybe Sunday, and then Sunday you're trying to get down two scripts. So that's as far ahead as you get, just a day or two ahead of where you go. Because yeah. the reason I want to ask is that when you do a play, when you do a movie, you know exactly where it's going to end. So you can shade your character, do whatever you have to to you know shade the performance. No pun intended. But the question I have with a TV series is, I don't know how far in advance you found out about the, just as one example, the sexual inclinations of your character. But is it harder to play a character when you don't know where it's going? Well, you know, this is where the soap opera came in. And what these writers said was the way you play your part is a way for us to see what you're doing. And if you do it like you do certain things, we're watching, which gives us an idea to use it so and it was the same thing on the soap opera they watch what the actor is doing and and based on what the actor is doing they will then add parts 
of what it is they're doing or saying or the behavior they have or let's just say every time that something gets really intense the voice just goes down a little low and say oh okay this is the game that you want to play well then they write in in a low voice says oh so this is and they they use what you bring so if you're just winging it you're doing yourself a disservice because the writers especially at first they're learning about you and so whatever you give them they'll use so you're having fun with it it's a different kind of experience for you how do you compare it to other stuff you've done before to be totally truthfully really honest can i be really honest (laughs) the hardest thing about this show is that it's all it's being produced all by jennifer's people Right, so you got her manager, you got her best friend slash head of her production company, you've got some other girl, I don't know where she fits in, everything is through Jennifer, there's no rape producer, there's no, so the biggest thing was to fight for, wait a second here, I didn't sign on to be in the so-and-so show. I came in to be a part of a show that also has me as well as you and other characters. So do you have that conversation with her? No, uh, because they, to their credit, that's exactly what they wanted. And it never turned out that way. When I say you asked if she was the diva, there's no, no, it's me. So you're saying those were concerns of yours going into it, but they were not actually things. Yeah, I didn't have to. And really, the bottom line, it it comes down to the showrunner, Jack Orman. And he's really, really good. And he was a question mark, too, because the last thing that he did was a show about flight attendants in the 60s <laughs> and now That's a he's, long way from and that. now he's doing this you know ballsy show about right. cops who kiss each other in, <laughs> in, in at this period right. so it was there were a lot of ifs but i just fought I wasn't an I was I was really protective of my character and what was was and you're happy with how it's gonna be out. happy and they were all I, I I can't say enough about how great they have been it isn't Jennifer's and not mine it's they they really are for the whole show. And I remember Jennifer was also doing American Idol. She was putting together a Vegas show and she was doing this. It's a lot. So they've been great, I have to say. But that it was a concern at first that I hope doesn't pop up again. My last question is this. You know, we've just spent a lot of time looking over the whole arc of your life and your career and all that. So at this point, as you you know, look back at all of this and look ahead to, you know, you're going to do some more of this show uh, indefinitely. You know, we'll see how long you feel like, you know, it seems to be going well. All of this, what's your sort of state of the union right now? How do you feel about things? Truthfully, yeah. I feel like I haven't gotten there yet. In what sense? In terms of parts. And I was the guy for about the first four films. Like I was the one that all the movies were coming to. 
And then I thought it was about acting, so I went and did like a Rat Pack, or I went and did this thing called No Escape, which was this great boy thing that nobody saw. I still feel like I haven't gotten my shot. I'm as hungry now, and I have a burn and a desire now as much as probably what my daughter has starting out. I still have so much more... I want to do. That's good. Yeah. Drives you nuts, but (laughs) it's good. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is great. Thanks, man. Hey, Drew Scott here. And I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.